So, Mark. Yes? While the dialogue scenes of this week's movie were directed by Mervyn Leroy, the song and dance sequences were directed by the legendary Busby Berkeley. What a great combination of names. Oh, Mervyn I mean, Leroy and Busby Berkeley present. So, bu- Busby Berkeley. Berkeley, we're pretty sure, was his given first name. Busby was a nickname taken from like one of his mom's friends. Anytime you talk about his names, though, you're kind of guessing because the child's name section of his birth certificate is blank. What? Yes. I had no idea. That's what government there's records were a like. Blank at the time. Line. There is a space for child's name and there's nothing on it. It's like how in Sardinia, which is supposedly a place with the most people over 100, some people question that because the records are so inaccurate that people don't know for sure if these people are over 100 or not. They're just guessing their age. That kind of stuff comes up a lot when people are like, wow. People born in January are disproportionately Democrats. It's like, no, if they don't know somebody's birthday, they just write January 1st of the year that they're born. So there's a disproportionate number of people allegedly born in January. I think sometimes people forget how bad record keeping was in the past. Until very recently. Until very recently. Anyway, Busby Berkeley... directed the musical sequences for this movie as he did for a number of other iconic dance movies like 42nd Street and Footlight Parade. He's best known for his overhead shots of people dancing around in circles, often with large props. Now, Mark, I was wondering, do you have a favorite, not Busby Berkeley dance scene, but parody Busby Berkeley dance scene? Because he's so iconic that these things are all over the place. I mean, one of the best and also questionably homophobic is the one from blazing saddles towards the end of the movie after they've busted out of the western sets they end up on the set of a busby berkeley parody with men in suits and it chaos ensues it's a very weird moment in the movie too this is right before they burst into the dining room What a weird climax. <laughs> that is the moment the movie is leading up to, is the fight like in the back lot of Warner Brothers or whatever studio it is. I learned something unbelievable about Blazing Saddles recently, which is that Mel Brooks really did not Warner Brothers to make sequels. So he got his lawyer to write into the contract that they couldn't produce sequels unless they had a TV show spinoff or version of it made within like six months or something. In part because, like, nobody was going to air Blazing Saddles on TV at that point because of the language and the content. And also just because, like, why would they do that? So then Warner Brothers hired a writer's room and actors and not only, like, shot a pilot for a Blazing Saddles TV show. They made six seasons of it. Aired none of it. Just with the goal of then being able to go to Mel Brooks and saying, hey, we're making a Blazing Saddles sequel. And then Mel Brooks said... Um, no, you're not. Where's the TV show? And then they showed him the six seasons of a secret Blazing Saddles TV show they had made because the contract did not stipulate that the show had to air. That's insane. Stories of making TV shows or something quickly to maintain the rights, I love. You know that book series, The Wheel of Time? It's like 14 book high fantasy series. Amazon is currently working on an adaptation. Well, there's already been a television adaptation of The Wheel of Time, specifically the first book, and it aired at like 3 a.m. because this small studio that bought the rights in like the 90s wanted to hold on to them and they were about to lapse. I think it's on YouTube somewhere. I made it it's through like, like the two 90s minutes. Fantastic Four movie. Yeah, I made it through like two minutes before I had to be like, all right, this is not worth watching. 
Here's the thing, though. I get that they made a pilot. The pilot actually has been on some home video releases of Blazing Saddles. I don't want to see the pilot of this TV show. I want to see season six. I want to know what they were doing years after it was clear that this thing was never going to be aired. I want everything from that show that they have. Because if you're doing this so fast, you're clearly not writing quality content. So like season four, episode five, that's the one I want to see right in the middle before they, you know, they've lost steam and they don't see the end in sight. That's the moment I want to see the real low of the low. Okay. Speaking of hastily made TV spinoffs of movies, as we are recording, Amazon just announced that they are proceeding with a League of Their Own TV series. To which I say, are they planning to remake the episode where they have to deal with their team's new chimpanzee mascot? I hope so. But also, I saw a tweet from Abby Jacobson, who's in it, that it's not really an adaptation, and they're actually bringing in new stories. And I think it looks like some of that will be about the black women's baseball teams, and I'm very excited about that part. I'm very excited about it. You're right that it does seem like they're using the name as leverage to tell stories about the Women's Baseball League during World War II. However, I think we also need the chimpanzee episode, which I I also recently found on YouTube and tweeted out. So if you dig back to our tweets from early August, you can find a link to the YouTube video of the monkey episode of A League of Their Own. I do think that that is worthwhile to revisit, but I am looking forward to the show. So speaking of Busby Berkeley... (laughs) Oh my god, I'd forgotten where we were. Yes, Busby Berkeley, Blazing Saddles parody. I think my favorite Busby Berkeley parody is in The Great Muppet Caper, which is not the best, but is probably my favorite of the Muppet movies, in which there is an extended Busby Berkeley synchronized swimming sequence in which Kermit and a human man sing a love song to Miss Piggy. That is truly an insane moment in film it's one of my favorite scenes of all time mel brooks actually has another busby berkeley parody in history of the world part one in which they do a musical number about the spanish inquisition and they bring out nuns who remove their habits to become synchronized swimmers that's amazing (laughs) I mean, in this movie, during the Petten in the Park sequence, the women emerge in armor, which Brad's character then has to open on stage with a can opener. That whole section of the movie is insane. Yeah. I cannot wait to talk about Petten in the Park. Bad boy. (laughs) My god, it's basically a song about cruising. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, it's so scandalous. Well, this is a pre-code movie, Mark. I know, and it's very... You can feel it. I love it. Actually, it is worth noting that this was a movie that had two different versions, and one version of it went out to places with stricter censorship boards, and the other went out to other places. I think HBO Max has the uncensored version. It does. And I was very grateful, because I think you lose some of the pet in the park in the censored version. At, At that point, what's the point? I know. If you don't see a man trying to get some action in the park by can opening the metal shirt that a woman is wearing, what more do you need? I think it's clear we should start talking about gold diggers. Oh, I'm very excited. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the most important, unimportant questions facing the world today. Particularly, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And... Are these people actually dateable or even likable? 
It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, we will take a look and see what we can see. And this week, we are looking at one of the oldest movies we've ever covered, the then-topical dance-slash-deception movie, Gold Diggers of 1933. This movie opened, and I was like, this seems familiar. And then I realized it is the movie that Bonnie and Clyde watch in the movie theater in the movie Bonnie and Clyde. Oh my gosh, you're right! When they're hiding from the cops in the movie theater, they are watching the opening number of this movie, the We're in the Money, with Ginger Rogers singing about money. So, fun fact about that sequence, the pig Latin verse in which Ginger Rogers stares straight at the camera and sings in pig Latin was added because she was just, like, casually hanging out on set speaking in pig Latin, and Busby Berkeley said, Put it in the movie! The production stories about things just, like, making it into the movies from this era is insane. This movie's also only 96 minutes, so I guess they were just looking to throw in some padding where they could. Why not? I mean, of course, you wouldn't just see this movie in theaters. You'd see a newsreel and a cartoon and stuff like that. Yeah. I think We're in the Money is my favorite number in this movie, though. I mean, it is the one that has the largest life outside this movie, too. Of course. But I just love the I love dollars. the set dressing for it. The giant coins yeah. and the outfits made of coins. Her feather boa, but instead of feathers, it's all dollar coins. It's so good. And it does a nice contrast with this movie that's all about the depression, where the characters, of course, are not in the money. And at the end, they are in the money, but everybody else isn't. The song even references old man depression. Apparently right. is over but it doesn't really feel over based on the rest of the movie. It's over exclusively for the singer of We're in the Money. I mean, this movie comes out and is set in 1933, the spring of 1933. So Franklin Roosevelt has just taken office. Uh, The Depression is bad. I mean, things are rough. One of the running threads throughout the movie is this idea of the forgotten man, which is a popular phrase from the time Franklin Roosevelt gave a speech about the forgotten man. And in the movie, it focuses particularly on World War I veterans who went overseas to allegedly make the world safe for democracy and are now in poverty. This comes out less than a year after World War I veterans marched on Washington to try to get relief from the federal government. And instead, the army under Douglas MacArthur was ordered to drive them out of the city. This movie definitely ended on a much sadder note than I was expecting. A little bit, because it ends with, I think, a very powerful sequence. Yeah. But this forgotten man sequence about how bad things are. Right, it's like, everyone has their moments, all the plot is wrapped up, things are feeling good, all the women are rich again, and then you just get this number about World War I veterans being mistreated by the U.S. government. End movie. It is worth noting that originally... Petten in the Park and Forgotten Man were flipped. And that's how they filmed it. So Forgotten Man was going to happen earlier in the movie as, like, the big opening night of the show. And then they would end with this, like, happy Petten in the Park. We're all flirty and having a good time. But they decided, A, we've got this big powerful thing. Let's put it at the end. And B, the characters are all feeling good and in the money and everything's great for them. But for everyone else in the country, it's not. That is true. The movie feels very escapist up until that moment. And then it's just, nope. Everything is still terrible, and we understand that you are feeling terrible now. Yeah. I loved this movie. It's fun. It was so fun, and it's on HBO Max. Yes, if you go to the Max, you can watch Gold Diggers of 1933. 
You can also there watch Gold Diggers of 1935. This is part of a weird pseudo-franchise that has its roots in a play on Broadway called The Gold Diggers, which was on Broadway in 1919-1920, which has a pretty similar plotline to this movie. That got made into a silent film called The Gold Diggers in 1923. That movie's now lost. And it was made into a talkie called The Gold Diggers of Broadway in 1929. That movie is also mostly lost today. But Gold Diggers in 1933 continues the success. Uh, the original Gold Diggers of Broadway, the talkie, was the top movie at the box office in 1929. Gold Diggers of 1933 was the second biggest movie of the year, behind a Mae West movie where she plays a sideshow dancer. And then there were further movies, the Gold Diggers of 1935, of 1937, and Gold Diggers of Paris, none of which have the same characters, even though some of them have the same actors. <laughs> It's, you know, more like an anthology series. Right. It's American Horror Story colon Gold Diggers. Yeah, of course. Which, honestly, probably will happen someday. But yeah, a lot of the people recur, particularly Dick Powell, who plays Brad, and Joan Blondell, who plays Carol, are also in Gold Diggers of 1935 and 1937. They were actually married from 1936 to 1944, and there was some outrage in the fan press because people claimed that Joan Blondell had stolen Dick Powell from Ruby Keeler, who plays Polly, because the actors who played Brad and Polly had been romantic partners in a bunch of movies, and they were like, they should be together in person, even though Ruby Keeler had been married for like a decade. Celebrity fan culture today is bad, but it's back so tame. then, it was insane. People really felt like they were in so control of the celebrities, and they got to dictate who they loved. I mean, that's kind of what Singing in the Rain is about. Yeah, and the press just lied all the time. They just lied straight up about these people. Yeah, and I mean, that's partially because the studios fed them lies. And then they printed their own, too, so I just don't know how you would trust anything coming out of that press world. Also, Hedda Hopper, who was, like, big part of it, (laughs) she was just a terrible person. (laughs) Yeah, she was no good. (laughs) No good. The amount of people that she turned into the black, to HUAC, was just ridiculous. Yeah, bad lady. Um... I think the most important piece of context for Gold Diggers of 1933 is that it is basically 42nd Street 2. So 42nd Street was made, Busby Berkeley directs the musical numbers, Warner Brothers decides this is going to be a massive hit, so then they pretty much immediately put the crew into production on making another movie. And this has, again, a lot of the same cast, where Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell are the leads of 42nd Street, Ginger Rogers is in 42nd Street, you've got the same songwriters who are Harry Warren and Al Dubin, like, it is the same crew reassembled to make another movie. It is worth noting, this movie was originally called High Life, and it was just going to be, like, sensual backstage stuff, and they made it into a musical in part because of the success of 42nd Street. And I gotta say, we eventually got a movie called High Life, and it was different. What was the High Life movie? The haunting Claire Denis film about Robert Pattinson slowly dying in space. (laughs) I forgot that that's what that movie was called. Have you watched 42nd Street? I know nothing about it. I have. It's a good movie. It is more of a song and dance movie than this one is, in part because in that one, the show is run, as, if I recall correctly, in that one, the show is running for a good chunk of it. It follows like the audition process and then ends with the show. So it ends with a bunch of dance numbers. Whereas this one, we have a big number at the beginning and then petting in the park in the middle and some stuff at the end. But this is less of a dance thing, which I think speaks to the fact that it was not developed as a dance movie and that stuff was added in later. Yeah, the songs really just they're not very integrated into the plot except for the fact that they work on a show yeah 
like I feel they don't really progress the story, which as is much. true in Forty Second Street as well. But that one is more explicitly about the process of putting on a show, whereas this one is the story of the gold diggers, and they happen to be putting on a show as well. Right. But it's worth noting that that is also typical of musicals in this period. These movies are coming out a couple of years after Showboat, but still like a decade before Oklahoma. So the Broadway musical, in large part, is a vehicle for songs in which narrative is not so much a driving force as a frame on which to hang some songs, some of which will hopefully become hits. So like the musical, as we think of it, doesn't really exist at this point. Because they just kind of would throw the same songs into multiple shows, too. Yeah, that's very common on Broadway. Although it's worth noting, all of the songs in this were written for this movie. But We're in the Money went on to be in like three other movies. Yes, and actually, notably, while Gold Diggers of 1933 has not been adapted into a stage musical, 42nd Street has been, and Worry and the Money is in it. Huh, I guess that kind of makes sense. I don't know if this would, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but I feel like this is good as a movie, but I don't know if it would be as fun on stage. I don't know that I agree with you, but we will discuss that later. I don't know, I'm, tr- I'm thinking about it. We'll see, we'll discuss later. Um, this movie, like we said, it's directed uh, by Mervyn Leroy and Busby Berkeley. It has this lineage of various gold digger adaptations and a cast of of real stars, where Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell had been the leads of 42nd Street, which was a giant hit. Ginger Rogers, very much on the rise. This movie came out the same year as her first movie, Partnership with Fred Astaire. She was much less used in this than I expected. Well, that's in part because she's not a huge name yet. Right. She feels like the designation on Broadway of featured actor. Like, she's in it, she does a thing, but she's not a main player. It almost feels like they brought her on for We're in the Money just to do the lead on that number, and then they were like, oh, I guess we should write her a part later in the movie, too. Her part in 42nd Street is the character Anytime Annie, who is good to go anytime. That's quite a name. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We've also got Warren William playing Lawrence, who very frequently played villains, particularly in pre-code movies. And I think perhaps the performance we need to discuss the most, Billy Barty, who is a dwarf actor who played the baby in Petten in the Park. Oh my god, that was bizarre. Billy Barty actually has had a long and interesting career. We've seen him before as a baby created by Dr. Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, (laughs) And in 1957, he founded the Little People of America organization to, like, advocate for the rights of little people. So that's really great. However, in this movie, he plays, I guess he plays an actor who in the show plays a pervert baby who shoots a cop and roller skates away. Is that correct? Yes. And then later is a peeping Tom on women as they change. Right. That's the pervert part. What a weird addition to that number. It's deeply strange. Like, the number is about cruising but also centers on a ostensible child for a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, he, like, hauls himself out of, like, a bassinet. Right. But it's also, like, there is something kind of off about the child, too. Like, it, right. you it's watch the, it. He's the it, baby from Roger Rabbit. Right. But no, it is Billy Barty doing a strange performance. That part really threw me off in that song. I got really Look, confused. This, this is a weird movie, Mark. <laughs> this is a weird movie. I loved it, but this movie, so much in it just kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. People should watch it. Again, it's on HBO Max. You can go to the Max. It's like it, but it, it's under an hour 40. It's weird. 
Oh, so good. Should we start talking about the romance of the movie? Let's just do it. I mean, that's most of the movie. Like we said, it has this framing of being about putting on a show, but it's really about these relationships and the duplicity of our titular gold diggers. Who are all incredible. And varying degrees of actual gold digger status. Yes. Like, Polly is not. Polly is not. Trixie is. And Carol falls somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And Trixie's so open about it. That's what I love about Trixie. I had a feeling you were really gonna like her. I mean, obviously. She's the comedian of the group and is just, like, blatantly scamming people for money and somehow getting away with it. Alright, so we should we should dive in. Alright, so the movie opens with the big we're in the money number, but in the middle of it, the cops come and just start repossessing the set as they as are the performing. Song is happening. It's like rolling away the giant coins. It looks like the Batcave. They're trying to like take the clothes off the women as they're wearing them too. And it is weird because they are like you would expect that to be framed as like lecherous cops taking the clothes off them, but it's not framed that way. It's just framed as they're like, no, we're taking everything. Yeah, I mean, this movie does not paint the repossession people in a good light. Which makes sense. It's the Depression. I know. It's really just like the cops are talking about taking all of this stuff home to use in their station. Like the cop station. I'm like, that's not what happens. The bank owns it. Aren't you taking it for the bank? One of the things that I thought was really interesting, particularly around this sequence, the way the movie is filmed. A lot of times when we watch some older movies, particularly when we're watching dramas, things like Dial M for Murder, there is a feel akin to watching something that has been efficiently recorded from the stage or something like that. You have this feeling of the soundstage. And this movie has a lot of interesting stuff going on in terms of film language. There's classic Busby Berkeley stuff, like the filming of chorus members in close-up. But one of the things that struck me early in this movie is as the police department is repossessing the show there are these like close-up testimonials of some of the women saying stuff like oh yeah i've been in all these shows they close before they open it's the kind of thing that feels like it's out of a documentary people talking about work during the depression this movie is very good at attempting to capture the spirit of what the depression would be like for these people always like stopping and starting hoping that this job is going to work through and that the money falls apart right And so after this, we see the three leads, Polly, Carol, and Trixie, all sleeping in the same bed back at their apartment, which is supposedly run down and in bad condition and everything. But it's this massive apartment, and they use, like, china and stuff. And it's so funny to hear them talking about versus what it looks like to us. Because, I mean, in the world of pre-single-use plastic... Everything is, you know, in glass and wood and stuff. So everything just looks like it would be expensive today. I think it's also worth noting the fact that, for the most part, our lead girls are not people who are consistently in poverty. They are people who you imagine were, like, working for a living, but were pretty consistently able to do so until the Depression hits. And so I imagine that over time, if Barney's show did not pick off, we would see their place look less and less nice. Like, I imagine they've already sold their door because the door to their apartment is unpainted plywood. But do they move to a new apartment after... I I don't think so. At some point, the door was no longer that bad, I feel. I don't remember noticing that, but it's possible. I feel like the apartment set... I guess maybe the idea is that they have the money from the show, so they're improving their apartment. But I kind of got confused. It's also hard without color, honestly, to keep track of... 
what places what. I appreciated that Polly, Carol, and Trixie all had very distinct haircuts. Oh, it was very helpful. They were (laughs) probably the easiest three actresses to keep apart in any movie we've covered from this era. Yeah. All right, so we should dig into this romance. Every week, we break down a movie's romantic plotline into five points. And really, where point one for the relationship happens in this movie is after the We're in the Money show has been canceled, and they're hanging out at home, and Polly... Here's in their Brad high heels, <laughs> as they're all hanging out in their high heels and PJs. And, well, Brad ha- just hangs out at home alone in a suit and tie. That's what you've been doing in quarantine, right? Oh, of course. I just love the combination of, like, their flowing nightgowns and also high heels. It's like, well, I gotta look somewhat fancy. Of course. What if Brad sees you through the window? Yeah, so Brad and Polly are just, like, undressing each other with their eyes, and the sexual tension is there. There's some real window flirting. I've got to sing a talk song, for that's the way I feel when I feel a thing. Then I can sing, it must be real. I like the way that they, through the window, are, like, blowing kisses at each other and, like, waving and stuff. It feels very much like silent acting, which all of the actors working at this time would have had experience with. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of pantomime that fits. Right. It's in that transition from the really elevated pantomime of silent movies into a more naturalistic style of acting like you can see that happen throughout the 30s as things get more and more kind of realistic right and silent films are still being made at this point we're still three years before modern times oh huh i didn't put that into perspective so they're flirting but then barney comes over and barney is played by ned sparks who is the actual archetype for the cigar chomping business dude like that is the guy who is caricatured in cartoons yeah he is chewing that cigar And it barely seems lit. The actor Ned Sparks had his face insured for $100,000 because that look was so important to his career. It's so funny. I did not realize that he was the template. I loved him in this. He was so over the top. So Barney comes. He's like, I've got a new show about the Depression. Carol will be featured. Trixie will do the comedy. It's going to be great, but I've got no money. Right. And they've brought all of the girls from We're in the Money over, too, to hear about it. Because they heard that he has all the pieces of a show, and he does, except for the money. Right. And he hears Brad, after this, playing his piano through the window, and then basically on the spot hires him to be the music director of the show. And in he calls up his assistant and says, fire Warren and Dubin. I'm using this guy. Warren and Dubin are the actual songwriters of this movie. That was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, so he hires Brad, and Brad's like, cool, uh, how much money do you need? And Barney says, $50,000. Brad talks him down to fifteen, and then Brad is like, yeah, I can get you $15,000. I can't write you a check, but I'll bring you cash in the morning. That's not sketchy at all for a man living in a tenement. Well, that's why later on they become convinced that he's a Toronto bank robber. I loved that. And the fact that Polly was just like, yeah, we can make it through the fact that he's an international criminal. I'll go visit him in jail. As long as nobody finds out. It's also been And so Brad agrees to do the music on the conditions that his name not be used and that Polly get a lead part. 
And Barney keeps trying to get him to like join in, be the juvenile lead. Brad's response is, I've been doing that for 18 years, which is a meta joke about the fact that the actor Dick Powell was openly annoyed that he was still playing young men in movies and kept trying to move into like villain roles. Interesting to try and move he into didn't villain to roles. to do it until he was like 40. How old was he in this movie? Because he doesn't look that old. He's 29 in this movie. Okay, so he is still a young man. Yes. He is still a year before he gets control of his own money. Because a key part of the premise of this movie is that his older brother controls his money until he turns 30. How old is Lawrence supposed to be? I think 50. I don't actually think that, but that's what he feels like. The age gap between them is fascinating. We're supposed to buy that they're brothers when he could easily just be the father and it would make as much sense. But I think the brother is meaningful because there is less feeling of authority than there might be with a father. Like, Lawrence can't quite tell him what to do, except that he has control of the money. Right. I guess it would be weirder if a father tried to steal Brad's girlfriend, too. That would also be weird. I just looked it up. Warren William is 10 years older than Dick Powell. Okay. Well, Dick Powell does look... That's plausible. Yeah. Dick Powell does look younger. Dick Powell looks young, and Warren William looks old. Right. They did not meet in the middle. Okay. So anyway, Brad's going to help with the show. He's going to write the music. He's going to finance it. They get to put on the show. It's great. He just doesn't want his name used. He might be an international bank robber. That's what Trixie thinks, at least. But then the night of the show, the guy who's going to play the juvenile romantic lead who is like older than brad gets physical aches and pains and rubbing alcohol into his body doesn't help so brad has to go on to save the show and it takes a lot of convincing but they eventually get him to agree and they're petting in the park (laughs) yep (laughs) they pet in the park and then some old people in the audience recognize brad and make a call to the cops basically because they realize that as we find out point two he's actually a millionaire whoa And he didn't want his family to know he was involved in the theater. Because they are really opposed to the theater for some reason. It's funny because I just rewatched The Prestige, which is also a movie that gets a reveal out of a performer whose wealthy family doesn't approve of the performance stuff. I mean, it's like, I get it. But at the same time, the brother's vehemence against the theater is so exaggerated in this movie. Well, here's the thing, like... He's not opposed to all performance. Like, you could do, like, concert music. You just can't be part of this common folk riffraff. Yeah, he's really against chorus girls in particular. Yes. And as we... I mean, I will say, based on the actions later in this movie, he's probably going to be a little suspicious. They're kind of born out. Yeah. All right, so point number two, the next day. I've just spoken to my brother. He tells me uh, he wants to marry you. You're making a mistake. If you let me explain... Don't bother to explain. I've told him that if he disgraces the family by marrying a showgirl, the family is through with him. Did you say disgrace the family by marrying a showgirl? I said exactly that. Showgirls are reputed to be uh, parasites. Brad's brother Lawrence, along with their family lawyer, Faneuil, I believe they fly from Boston... Do they? I think he said, I just flew in from Boston, which maybe is a figure of speech, or it is a testament to just how absolutely extravagant this family is. Yeah, flying in 1932 or 33 would be a lot. Yeah, or maybe he took a Zeppelin. Oh my god. What if he took a Zeppelin? I think he did. I think he took the family's private Zeppelin. (gasps) Oh, imagine having a private Zeppelin. 
That's luxury. I would just buzz football games all the time. Sell some tires. Yeah. Buy my good month tires. So Brad then meets up with his brother and says, look, you got to come back home. And Brad is like, no, I'm in love with Polly and we're going to marry each other. And this is when Lawrence lays down the conflict, which is that Lawrence controls all of Brad's money and will cut him off if Brad marries Polly. And again, Polly and Brad have known each other, but not talked for two weeks. I think they have talked some because at the very least, Brad claims that Polly has helped him with writing songs that could just be as nonverbal inspiration, or it could be that they've hung out. Yeah. I mean, they do live like one apartment door over from each other. Right. And they could talk through the window. But it's still been like two weeks and they mostly communicate through music. Music is the language of the heart. So Lawrence threatens to cut them off. And then goes to Polly's apartment to try to bribe her to leave Brad. Which has always worked in every movie. Yeah. I'll just give you money and you'll never speak to my brother again. And that kind of brings us to point number three. Oh, yeah. we've got our conflict here. Right. Lawrence and Faneuil are here to shut it down. And now all of the players are in place because Lawrence now thinks that Carol is Polly. <gasps> oh, I beg your pardon, but am I interrupting? No, not at all. This is Brad's brother, J. Lawrence Bradford. I'm charmed. Beware, Trixie's a showgirl. Mm, and who is this distinguished-looking young man? I don't know. I am Fanuel H. Peabody. Fanuel? Uh, Fanuel. When I know you better, I'll call you Fanny. Right, he shows up at the apartment and is like, hello, I know my brother is interested in you, I'd like to pay you never to see him again. But he's not talking to Polly, he's talking to Carol. He never bothered to ask who she was. He's so annoying. He yeah, just- he's terrible. All of the conflict in this movie would have been avoided if Lawrence stopped talking for 30 goddamn seconds. So Carol and then Trixie, who is also home, just seize upon this as an opportunity to milk these dummies dry. And boy, are they successful. First they order expensive hats to the apartment with cash on delivery and make sad eyes at the men until they pay $75 a hat for each of them. <laughs> that was insane. I wouldn't pay $75 for a hat now. No, I figured that it was so, like they had a deal with the delivery boy. The hats were like 10 bucks and they split the rest. No, I think those were $75 hats. They were great hats. Oh, totally. All of the fashion in this movie continues to be incredible. So then they keep just like going around. Carol is never correcting Lawrence when he thinks she's Polly. Trixie is leaning hard on Faneuil, who has warned Lawrence about showgirls, but also immediately falls for Trixie. Yeah, he's had experience. He talks about the girl in like Germany or something that he dated. What was her name? Eunice? I think so. But just immediately falls into the exact same trap with Trixie because Trixie shows him an ounce of affection. Uh, he buys her a dog at one point. <laughs> one of my favorite Trixie moments is the first time she asks him for a cigarette. He hands her the cigarette case and she goes, ooh, gold, and then hands him back the cigarette while holding on to the case. But I mean, she is caught because this is very early on and she's just like, oh, silly me. Yeah, she's just immediately trying to grift. Yeah, and she's very successful at it, except for when they go to lunch, Ginger Rogers shows up as Faye and constantly keeps trying to steal Fanuel. And Trixie is like, I will break your legs if you talk to this man one more time. I think the presence of Faye is notable because it suggests that this is not just Trixie kind of leaning influence onto Carol. Like, this apparently is a rampant chorus girl thing. Yeah, the movie is not that kind to chorus girls. No, I mean, they all get a happy ending, but. 
but <laughs> but they are painted as gold diggers and parasites throughout the movie. Right. So, for example, uh, they go to lunch and get sloshed because this movie is filmed and set during the last months of Prohibition, but New York was never that dry anyway. They're just openly drinking at restaurants, and they mention yeah. a speakeasy, but I'm like, this fancy, like, everyone is in top hat and tails restaurant is not a speakeasy they are just breaking the law it was I mean, great and i mean that's the thing when you dig into the politics of prohibition in the 20s and 30s it is partially a rural urban divide where cities tended to be a lot more wet than rural areas but also there are states where they just like didn't really bother enforcing those laws it looks so fun <laughs> some of the lunches usually the old movies the like stuffy lunches they have don't look that fun but with trixie there and carol everyone's having like the time of their life I wish we had gotten to see some of Trixie's comedy, because she is the comedian of the trio. Yeah, there's not a lot of, like, comedy comedy as it would have been on stage in the movie at all. Yeah. Like, pratfalls or physical comedy or anything. But I can imagine the actress playing Trixie would have been very funny on stage. Oh, I believe it. That was Aileen McMahon. So, they go then that night, I think, already, to a dance club yes they do and now polly is there but oh they get brad and polly in on the scheme and brad's basically like let's my brother over as much as we can so brad is like sulking the whole time that lawrence is flirting with carol who he thinks is polly because lawrence in his efforts to get carol not to marry brad is like accidentally falling for her and thinks that he's luring her away from brad he's like i can get her to not want to be with brad and then i can dump her and we'll all be rid of these showgirls only maybe i won't dump her right and so eventually lawrence gets absolutely hammered along the way he like tries to create a false past for carol who he thinks is polly where he's like you seem much too genteel for this life like what's happened to you and she's like oh my father was a government official and then he died and i was forced to live in this sad life as a showgirl like her father was a mailman and she likes doing this right And this is, he's making up this story for Polly as Carol and is saying like, Brad, you should marry her, referring to the woman he's actually in love with as Carol's just pretending. It's a little confusing, but it's great. It's a lot of layers of deception. Yeah. One of my favorite moments is when he's saying that and Polly's making up her past. Trixie is in the background explaining the reality. So it's like, my father was a government official. He was a mailman and my mother was weak and withered away. And then Trixie's like, she could have taken on someone in a fight and I had to look it up. And apparently it was like one of the best boxers of the time. Yeah. I mean, everybody's lying to each other in this movie. Except for Brad and Polly, who are telling each other the truth, and that truth is that they want to get married. No, because even Brad is lying to Polly throughout the beginning of their relationship. To the point where Polly believes. Yeah, to the point where Polly thinks he's a Canadian bank robber and is still going to marry him. Okay, so everyone's lying to everybody. Yeah. And that continues. When Lawrence goes back to the apartment with Carol and passes out and they put him in Carol's bed to scandalize him. Right. Like they take off his clothes and then he wakes up in the morning and is very disheveled and upset. And then Trixie imply like asks him to pay, implying that Carol was a prostitute. And Trixie gets a $10,000 check out of him. An outrageous amount of money. They just throw money around like it's nothing. It's the depression. I know. Lawrence's family is uh, like... I want to know what they invested in. I, yeah, how do they have this much money still? Because even rich people were hit by the depression somewhat. Well, all the ones who had their money in the stock market like lost everything. So they must have invested in like rum. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's boom times for rum investors in 1933. Oil? I don't know. Maybe it's all illegal money. So this brings us to point number four. Lawrence thinks that he had sex with a prostitute. And he goes back to his apartment, and that's where Faniel, the dumb old (laughs) lawyer who has been completely hoodwinked by Trixie, shows him the newspaper, where we see that the front page above the fold only thing with a picture news is that Brad married Polly the night before. In the shadows when I come and sing, in the shadows when I come and sing. Like, raises so many questions, like, who was the witnesses? Why was the courthouse open at 2 a.m.? Also, just, I looked it up, $10,000.33 was almost $200,000. Yeah, I believe today. it. That's insane. This man is an idiot. That is way more than they need. I'm just confused about why this wedding is front page news. Well, because he's a he's a rich person, so obviously is worth paying attention to. Also, in the same conversation, Faniel announces that he and Trixie are in love, despite having received no real evidence from Trixie, <laughs> except that she is happy to let him spend money on her. I mean, it seems that Faniel has the money to spend, considering he spent what is now almost $1,500 on a single hat. <laughs> just weird because like carol is like legitimately flirting with lawrence trixie is giving faniel nothing i mean she basically calls him cute and treats him like the dog that he buys her when they're dancing the night before she refers to him as being light as a heifer she corrects herself light as a heifer oh sorry feather i love it faniel is so dumb so lawrence goes back to the apartment because he's angry about the wedding and wants to break them up And when he gets there, he sees Carol and he yells at Carol for lying to him. And she's like, I never said I was Polly. You just never asked. And he tells her that he loves her, despite having effectively just learned her name. And then they make out some. And then he's like, but I'm still going to break up my brother's marriage. And he sees nothing wrong with that in his mind. Right. He's like, I get to marry a chorus girl, but my brother cannot marry a chorus girl. It's unseemly. (laughs) Like, it really makes no sense. And Carol calls him out on that. Right. Carol's like, if you break them up, I will not marry you. But otherwise, I'm fine with it. And she's hung the $10,000 check on the wall in a frame as a reminder not to be hoodwinked by rich people. She's like, rich people are trash. And I need to remind myself of this every day. I don't know. I don't really get the logic of it. Because it doesn't even have her name on the check. I like it as a trophy to the con. Yeah. As a reminder of the great scam you pulled. Because she's right that he would immediately cancel the check. Right. So that takes us to point number five. That night, we're back at the show. This whole movie takes place over, like, two days, really, once the show gets rolling. Remember my forgotten man. You put a rifle in his hand. You set him far away. You shouted him hooray. But look at him today. We arrive at the show, we're seeing stuff going on backstage, and among other things, we quickly learn that Trixie and Faniel have gotten married. Already. They show up backstage and they're just like, we're married now! Which is a bananas move. The stage manager type person, the one who's telling everyone to get on stage, is actually Busby Berkeley himself. Yes, it is. So, apparently, Fanny has married Trixie. Of course, Brad and Polly got married in secret overnight, so that just leaves Carol and Lawrence 
who show up, and what Lawrence announces is that he's going to have the marriage annulled, and he has brought a policeman to arrest Brad for falsifying his age on a marriage license. Brad points out that he didn't do that, and Lawrence is like, it doesn't matter, it'll take them a while to investigate, and in that time, I can have your marriage annulled. This is an outrageous thing to do. And then Barney is immediately is like, that's an actor, because again, this is outrageous and no cop would go along with it. Barney's like, I've hired that guy before. It's an actor, and Lawrence is like, you're right it is. I'm just kidding. Glad you guys are married. Have the $10,000 check. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And also, it's worth noting very specifically that he did not warn Carol in advance he was going to do this. Because Carol's like, I thought you said you weren't going to do this. And Lawrence is like, no, I'm doing it. It's utterly wild. This movie ends with like five different twists. And all of that's in the like last 30 minutes of the movie. And then you get a powerful sequence about the plight of World War One veterans. Yep. And that's it for the Gold Diggers of 1933. Woo! After watching this movie, do you find the romances believable? No. I believe (laughs) Polly and Brad, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, and they're basically the only two decent people in this movie. I also stand by Barney. Yeah, he never really does anything wrong. He just seems mean. Yeah. So, every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale, where 10 means we believe everything that happens romantically, and 0 means we believe none of it. So where would you rate the believability of Gold Diggers of 1933? This movie's like a 2. Yeah, I think that's right. We got Brad and Polly, and that works, and everything else not just doesn't make sense, doesn't make sense by a substantial degree. Exactly. Do you think that any of our romantic leads are dateable? I think Polly and Brad are dateable, and maybe Carol. Do you think that any of the couples will stay together? What do you think on that one? I'm torn, because it's the 30s, so divorce is much less of a thing. But if Fanny somehow loses any money, Trixie will leave him in an instant. There's no love there. I think there is not a long life for that marriage unless Faniel just dies. Yes. And then Lawrence and Carol, no. Carol deserves better. Carol deserves a nice person. I guess Brad and Polly, maybe. Yeah, I think they probably will. Because you might think about, like, the class difference, but Brad wants to be doing Broadway kind of stuff. Like, he's like, I like music, but I like popular music. Right, so I guess the two of them could be a Broadway power couple. Yeah. Now, if you had to pick one person in Gold Diggers of 1933 to date, who would it be? Keeping in mind, many of them are gold diggers. I mean, I love Trixie, but I would not date her. No, 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 no. I have no idea. I think I would date Brad. I think Brad is the only real option. He's nice, and he writes nice songs, and he has a lot of money. So do you think this should be adapted for the stage? I'm kind of torn about it. I think it could be really fun. Because I think that if you made this into a full-on stage musical, you would just get to lean even harder into the silliness, which is what we liked about it. That is true. I mean, I guess Busby Berkeley numbers are probably tough to get the full effect of on stage. Yeah, they are designed for film, which is part of what's so exciting about them. Right. Think about the dance of the neon violins. When they, neon violins, became a giant neon violin, I was living. I loved it. So you would definitely lose out on that. But I think the screwball nature of this could actually be really fun on stage. Yeah, I think so too. Right. I think that's about for the gold diggers of 1933. It's a good movie. I'm glad we did it. Uh, Mark, you ended by talking about screwballs, and in that spirit next week, we will be looking at the 1938 screwball classic, Bringing Up Baby. A movie where the title 
led me to believe the plot would be entirely different than it is. Me as well. <laughs> so until next time, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Gold Diggers of 1933? I think it's a lesson that we could have also taken from Meet Me in St. Louis when we discussed that, which is that singing out the window can lead you to true love. That's what I was going to say. Dust off those keys and tickle that ivory because you got to play the piano, baby. Well, there you go. Until (laughs) next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Just a little, then hug a little, cuddle up and whisper this. Come on.